Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So one of our favourite athletes on the Science of Sport podcast is the, the cyclist Matteo van der Poel, or as a lot of people say, Matthew van der Poel, depending on what part of the world you come from. But uh, the reason why he's uh, one of our favourite is not just because he's a great cyclist and uh, has a great deal of history and interesting genetics because he comes from a long line of top class world champion both on both sides of his family, but also that he shares all of his stats. And uh, after the uh, Tour of Flanders uh, most recently, he basically shares everything from his heart rate to his power curves to even his nutrition strategy. And we saw on Instagram that um, they had posted his uh, nutrition strategy in a photograph, which was taped on top of the stem of his bike, um, which showed exactly what he was drinking and at what point he took his most crucial nutrition on the day. So we thought we'd uh, split this podcast into two segments. First of all, to discuss Matteo van der Poel, discuss his particular his performance at the Tour of Flanders and to look at some of the numbers that he was putting out, discuss the strategy that we can detect from those numbers. And then the second half of the discussion is around cadence. And most recently, we've seen a report coming out around cadence in cycling in terms of the fact that most people believe, a la Lance Armstrong, that the higher your cadence, the better you are as a cyclist. And a recent research has now come out suggesting that may or may not be the case. And I think Ross is going to get into that detail. So welcome, Professor Ross Tucker. Mm -hmm. It's been a while since you've been sitting here in our studio, but uh, we are here to discuss our passion, which we, we love discussing cycling because we're both cyclists ourselves, although amateur ones are best. And uh, this is a fascinating discussion because watching Matteo van der Poel at the Tour of Flanders was uh, a spectacular scientific display, but also a physical display, wasn't it? Yeah, and and the thing about cycling now is that the metrics that we see from van der Poel himself are so easily relatable to us because we can also experience 600 watts for 10 seconds. 10 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Not a minute and a half like he was at in a... 270k race yeah um and so it's it's fun to see and i think it's definitely you know together with strava and power meters it's actually made cycling quite accessible to the number junkies among us um that's not to say always you ride on numbers like for instance pogaccia allegedly lost his computer in a crash very early in the race did you read that no and so he didn't have heart rate or power or anything was riding it on feel mm-hmm. um and I mean, Van der Poel was probably riding it on feel in the sense that he was just feeling a lot of pain hanging on a wheel. Mm. Um, but it's just fun to see. And, and as you say, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not a very trusting person generally of, of sport. <laughs> not trusting of cycling. In particular, but not all sports. But yeah. um, when someone is as transparent and open with their data as he is, then, mm. you know, we always say like, you know, the lack of transparency is the problem in cycling. So it would make me hypocritical to then say that when you're transparent it doesn't earn you some credit 
And I think it's great. I think it's wonderful that he shares his data the way that he does. A lot of the cyclists have Strava files. You can follow them, but they hide the power, and he doesn't even do that. So mm. I think it's pretty cool. He says, here, this is what I'm about, mm. and uh, enjoy. And I think it's cool. Uh, some people would disagree, of course. I was listening, actually, to uh, the, um, <coughs> the Armstrong podcast, the cycling one, yeah. and Johan Braniel was saying he thinks it's crazy that Finnepool shares the data. And I, I've never understood that. I mean, <laughs> well, that, that's, that's my next question. Apologies for the coughing you probably might hear in the podcast. I got a bit of a, a post nasal problem, so uh, my apologies. I've got my post coffee slip. Yeah, coffee slip. Like, yeah. But yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about about why they wouldn't share that information. Is it because they don't want their competitors to know? what they're doing tactically out on the route so the more the competitors know about them the more they can potentially presumably compete like, against them i could see an argument <laughs> for um for training data being secretive around your training data you know like let's say let's say Funapool's preparing for the classic season and in fact he was and we knew that he had this injury issue and he's coming back now and going into milan san remo there was talk in the media about no one knows if Funapool's in good enough shape as he as he had the preparation he needed but in fact using his Strava you could have worked out that he's pretty good mm. because if you if you know enough about the guy's efforts and you've seen okay here's a one minute effort at this watts here's a five minute effort here's a 10 minute effort a 20 minute effort you can construct <coughs> basically a, a power duration curve we've spoken about this we did a podcast now two years ago talking about watts and ftps and so on and once you've got enough information, you can draw a guy's power duration curve and you can say, actually, this guy's in really good condition now. Mm. We know that he's got an anaerobic capacity of X. We know that his critical power or his FTP looks like it's in this range. That's going to be good enough to be at the front of the race. And sure enough, he was. So the fact- And the co- his competitors will have looked at the stuff that you're looking at and will we'll know that probably. Yeah, they presumably the, their yeah. coaches and- They're doing maybe their homework. Not, yeah, so they would all know. I mean- and they know like an elite cyclist is for a one minute effort to win or be competitive in a classic, you need seven watts, no, in fact, it'll be more, it'll be eight to nine watts a kilogram. The ability to produce that when fatigued. They'll know that for five minutes, given like in Milan San Remo, they're going up to Poggio at the end. You know like what the capability will be to be at the front of that race. So you can, and, and I think it works both ways. So the source of his confidence would have been those numbers. Mm-hmm. Because he'll know I'm capable of this. So if I have a normal day, I'll be there. If I have a great day, I'll be off the front. And if mm. I'm having a bad day, I'll be hanging at the back. So I think in the past, without this information, you went into a race with some doubt. You, you never have no doubt because you never mm. know if you're going to have very good legs on the day. Yeah. But now you know actually, if, if this is a typical day, I know that I'll be there. Mm. And so his rival then would be able to look at the same thing and say, if he's having a typical day, he'll be there. That, in my opinion, doesn't help them beat him mm. because it's the same. And I always talk about my other main sports, track and field. If you know that the guy you're racing against is capable of running a 12.45 5K with a 57-second last lap off a slow pace, that doesn't help you beat him if you can only run a 12.48 mm. with a 59-second lap. Mm. It's... And so similarly, when I look at Van Poel's data from Flanders now, and I'm seeing 679 watts on the Paterberg and a 500 and what was it on the, on the Quaramont was uh, 520 watts on the Quaramont. That's not helping me beat him mm. if I can only produce 500. 
Yeah. I mean, now I know why I'm losing. That's all, <laughs> that's all it's done, is it's helped me understand why I've lost. But you knew that anyway. Mm. So anyway, the, the point is, I can understand some reluctance to share all my training data, but not the race stuff. Mm. And in fact, and a different sport, admittedly, but there was a rugby team in the 90s that was dominant, the Brumbies. Their philosophy was, we'll share it all, because then you'll copy it. And by the time you've copied it, we've gone ahead. Mm. And I think it's almost the same. Like, if I'm fun to pull, I'm like, yeah, do it. Mm, mm. If, if you, if you want to imitate, then go for it. You're still yeah. not better than I am. Yeah. So, he's cap- because he is capable of his... I mean, race tactics right. aren't something you can put down on a Strava file because race tactics come into what he what will eventually become the win. Yeah, and even the capability mm. to ride the training rides that he does. Um, yeah. I don't know that you could... There's a handful of people in the world who could do that training. Mm. And... Mm. He's saying to everyone, there it is, mm. now mm. let's race. So, mm. so I, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, Johan Bernil, as I say, he said it's crazy. I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's great. Yeah. And it's, it's really, I don't think it's not good. Ge- I'd be very surprised if there was a way to use it to beat the guy. Yeah. I mean, okay, so again, I'm looking at the data here. He, he does the, the first pass of the Quaramont is done in, in 5.08, the second pass in 5.20. So in actual fact, that's one interesting thing is the first, well, it's not the first time they went up it, but it's the second to last, right? It was actually harder than the last time. And if you watched that race, you'd have seen by the time they went up it at the very end, it was just him and Pogaccia. Yeah. And it looked like this was where the race was being ramped up. It actually, well, let's, let's, I mean, let's take a step back quickly mm. and just give people some background into this. Obviously, the, the Ronde from Flanderen is what it's known, the Tour of Flanders, 280-odd kilometers. It's a mega long race. Lots of short, steep climbs, particularly towards the end, and a couple of little circuits towards the end. Which is terrific. It's like stadium vibes. It's really amazing. Cool. Yeah. I mean, the crowds yeah. this year were amazing looking yeah. at the side. There's a lot of passion. There's obviously cobbles to deal with. If it's wet, even when it's not wet, the cobbles are something to behold and very mm. tricky to ride on. And it's a race designed for those riders that are not pure climbers, but are power climbers rather mm. than guys like who can climb up the Alps. They're not necessarily going to do well on a climb like this. Right, because and again, yeah, just the, the physiology of a even a 15-minute-plus climb, never mind the 30 to 40 to hour-long climbs of the Alpe d'Huez, the Col mm. de Tourmalais, Galibiers, mm. is quite different from what's required to go for five minutes hard, followed by one yeah. minute hard up the Paterberg. So that's why these classics have always been traditionally the domain of the mm. Van der Poel, Cancellara, Bonans, not the to the France winner. Not the Egan Bernals. And yeah. the Tadej Pogaccia. Yeah. I mean, so that's, yes. so, so aside from Funapool, the big story was, okay, Pogaccia managed to come fourth in a two-man sprint. But um, <laughs> I saw that line, Peter Flax tweeted that. That's a great The best one was Pogaccia <laughs> found a way to finish fourth in a... Well, I mean, d- but, d- just to let people know, <laughs> if you didn't see the race, it was obviously Pogaccia and Funapool that got away and were riding on the road for most of the last 30 kilometers. And then the two riders behind caught them literally on the line, Pogaccia got squeezed out, and mm-hmm. Funderpool obviously won the event. But, but that aside, I mean, the big success story of the day, aside from the winner, was Pogaccia to, to yes. be there. I mean, I heard, again, on the, from Brunel, he would have been the first, first-time winner in 40 years of that wow. race. Never mind the fact that he'd have been the first guy since Merckx, I think, to win it as a tour champion. So, mm. And arguably, he was the strongest rider on the day based on what you could see on the course. Yeah, he was, he was certainly the driving, driving it. He was the aggressor, yeah. Correct. So if we go back to the race, he goes, maybe attacked, as the cat, there was a breakaway, and they, they caught them on the first, well, the second to last pass of the Quaramont, which I think comes with um, 
about 50 to go I think yeah, it is yeah. and that's when he goes and that that move was the biggest move of the day by mm. num- by the numbers and at one yeah. stage he was in the he was in the group behind and I think it was, was it the Coromant where he literally went past the group that they were caught yeah, as if one they go. were standing I mean, it just, still it was remarkable so that remarkable, was the yeah. that was the biggest scene so that's the that's the Coromant second to last time and I'm just looking at the numbers here that comes at about 225k so that's about 50 to go 50 to go yeah and according to Funapool's numbers that ascent of the Quaramont, which is a um, 2.8k climb at 3.5%, was done at 499 watts, and with with 600 watts for a minute and a half, 500 watts for almost two minutes. That was the big one. When they did it the <laughs> second time around, Funapool was 15 seconds slower than on the first time. Yeah. Well, I keep saying second. They they do it early in the race as well, but well, we're let's, talking let's about the business all, end of the race. Let's, put those, numbers in, let's put those numbers into context, and then we'll talk about why he was potentially slow on the second one rather mm. than the first. Sorry, faster on the first one rather than the second well, one. Well, second than third, but yes. But yes. Um, we're, we're, we're really talking about the last 50 here, the, the yeah. business end of the race, yeah. So I know, for instance, my probably my FTP, which is my 20-minute best time, is around about 240 watts, which is pretty low for a person of my size. A professional rider's FTP, what well, would they be looking at? Well, for, as, as a 20-minute effort, yeah, 20 minute six, effort. six and a half to 6.8 watts a kilogram. So... If I see Fennepool's listed at 75, I would imagine it's a little lower than that when he's in top shape. Yeah. So that's, what, 72 times almost 7, 450, 480 yeah. watts. Now, obviously, that's, so that's, that's, that's considerably nice longer than this this yeah. effort, right? Um, this is, I mean, in the, so, so here he's at 600 watts for a couple of minutes, and then he goes to the Parterberg, and he's at almost 700 watts for a minute. So that's... And this is after eight, 200 kilometers of riding. Yeah, so that's comfortably eight and a half, nine watts for one minute. And that's the difference, right? So that group initially had all the big names. Okay, Asgrin had a mechanical, but they dropped Laporte. They mm. dropped uh, Teshpanot. They dropped the guys who were with them. Ended up Madwas and I forget who ended up fourth. The Ineos was, uh, guy. Ineos, yeah. Dylan Van Baal, was yeah, that's it? right, Dylan Van Baal, yeah. Um, so, so, so the ability to go to 700 watts for a minute versus 650 is what creates a 20-second deficit yeah. or advantage in this case. And then you don't get that back. And then the next climb, you're another 15 watts down. So, yeah, I mean, you work it out. What's what's 600 divided by 70? You know, that's, that's Don't eight, ask me. I'm useless at that stuff. Eight, <laughs> let's call it eight and a half watts oh. a kilo. Yeah. Repeatedly. Because you're doing it on the Quaramont, doing mm. it again on the Koppenberg, doing it on the... Sorry. Paterberg, then the Koppenberg, then the Kramont, then the Paterberg. So by the time yeah. we saw that drone footage, which it was filmed amazingly well. Incredible. The the move that the what looked like Pogacha's big, big effort was actually a lesser effort than he'd made twenty K before that. Yeah. But by then the damage is done, right? Because everybody, a, everybody's tired. And it's attritional by now. Mm. Um yeah, so the so it's a harder effort to go you know, in the first ascent of the Paterberg, 679 watts for a minute and eight seconds, and then 750 on that steeper section. I mean, that's enormous, enormous numbers. That's mm. for, for, for him, it's 10 watts a kilo on that steeper section. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's sitting down. Because <laughs> you can't stand, right? Because you you're, you're wheel sliding away. And so, whereas when you look at the second ascent of the Paterberg, you know, instead of 679 and 740-odd, you're looking at... 649 and 668 respectively so yeah that's a that's a watt one and a half watts a kilogram less 
but it's a harder effort because by now you've accumulated so much fatigue in the legs and mm. yeah that's the difference you know between yeah. the so yeah. I mean, we talked, and we have talked about this in the past, that sometimes we look at the numbers of riders that do share their data and they look at Strava and they look at a stage of the Tour de France. And I think we used the example, I think it was of Egan Banal a couple mm. of years ago, where, you know, his average wattage for the whole ride was something below 100 or something. Well, I remember it was the first hour they flashed on television a stat. I remember riding a piece for your bicycling mag. Yeah. And that averaged 35k an hour, which is pretty sedate. Mm. Average watts was 90, kil- 90 watts per kilo, yeah. uh, 90 watts for Bernal. And if, I remember when going, well, is that all it takes? Well, <laughs> so yeah. the, well, what I'm suggesting is that anybody can ride along at 90 to 150, maybe even 200 watts. But the difference between what we're discovering now is the ability to be able to churn out 700, 650, 700 watts when it, when it counts. Right. So you're watching a stage race in the tour, that one particular everyone wants to get off in the break. And you know that within the first 10 Ks from the race live, there's gonna be half a dozen attacks. Mm. And until the composition of that break is settled, the peloton's responding to all those attacks. Mm. So probably for the first 20 minutes, they're riding at naught 20 watts. This is now the guys in the back, you know, they're being sucked along in this little bubble of mm. cyclists. It's 20, 30 watts for a minute or two at a time, and then 650 watts for 30 seconds because now there's a reaction to the to the break and the break doesn't have what they've deemed to be a good composition. Mm. So we bring it back and so it's this huge roller coaster. So by all means, if they rode at 90 watts for an hour, any one of us could stay with it. Yeah. Aside from the fact of sticking in that bunch, mm. but they're not riding it, they're riding at 650 watts for- When it counts. Yeah, and so what would happen is the first time you'd be shelled out the back. Yes. <laughs> then you're riding in your own. Yeah, most humans. And now suddenly you're on your own and you don't get the benefit of just being sucked along. So yeah. there's a lot more than just what you see the numbers say. So if you're somebody that's riding on an indoor bike, try this little experiment when you're doing in your next session. Maybe you're riding for an hour, hour and a half. And you can do this in sort of a microcosm. Ride along at a fairly easy pace, zone one, zone or two, and then try and get to 650 watts odd for a minute maybe at 45 minutes into it, which gives you some indication mm. of what Van der Poel did. But he's, of course, got 200 kilometers behind him at that point. Right. Relatively shielded, I really imagine, but he's still doing some climbing. Mm. But it gives you an indication for those of you that ride indoor bikes, how utterly unbelievable those top riders are. Exactly. And I mean, you saw the same, incidentally, at the, the previous monument, Manlan San Remo, because not from Van der Poel so much, but Pogaccio was... He was, he was aggressive three or four times himself making attacks. And when there were other attacks, he was the first person to follow them. And so in the space of five or six minutes, he must have gone up to seven, eight watts a kilogram for mm. a few seconds and then back down to the steady tempo, which there would be five, six, six watts a kilogram. Mm. I mean, the ability to raise the intensity that high and then recover for a short time and do it again five or six times, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So. It's hard, and, and presumably we know from Tirreno Adriatica that Pogaccia can do six and a half watts a kilogram for 20 minutes. He did that there to win the, well, the, one of the ways he won that race. So how do you beat the guy? Because yeah. he, can, he, can <laughs> he can produce one to two minute efforts like the classics riders. He can produce 20 minutes effort like a Tour de France champion. So where do you find an opportunity to beat him? That's why... Mm. That's why, I mean, unless, unless Roglic can go away and find some magic, but 
who, who's winning the tour against a guy who's got that range? It's very difficult to see how. And it's only because of Funapul we can actually not, quantify what he's doing. And physiologically, if you look at a guy like Pogacar versus Funapul, well, not versus, as as similar to Funapul, we know that Funapul and Pogacar are absolutely on a par when it comes to riding the classics. But Mati van der Poel is nowhere near him when it comes to running the Tour de France because he can't do the high mountains. Mm. Um, so that's what makes Pogacar particularly remarkable is that he's built like a classics rider but able to ride with the best on the mountains. He's built like a mountain rider able to ride with the classics riders. Yes. The other way around, right? Well, you don't think he's built more like a classics rider because he's a relatively big guy. Pogacar. Mm. Isn't he in the mid, mid to high 60s? Yeah, I think physically look at him, he looks like he's a bigger guy than Egan Bernal, who's probably below yeah, 60 I mean, but kilos. Bernal is, Bernal is a feather. <laughs> yes, but aren't big climbers but, aren't all feathers. I mean, well, like Lance Armstrong was a big climber when he, and he was 72 kilos. Yeah, I'd say the mid-60s. I mean, Froome was in the mid-60s and, and Wiggins. I mean, they got skeletal maybe through <laughs> methods. Of, Froome arms. Methods you might wonder about. Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd, no, for me, Pogacar is a Tour de France rider. He's you think he's doing like more a, like a Tour de France rider? He's riding like a classics guy. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, for those of you listening, what do you think? Do you think he's built more like a classics rider or a Tour de France? I always, maybe physically, physiologically looking at him, he feels like he's a bigger rider than a what you would deem a classics, a, a Tour rider. Well, when but, you say uh, built like, I mean, we're talking very one-dimensionally, like mass. Yes. Mass, right? I mean, that's... Mass and height, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Van der Poel is clearly not a high guy for the high mountains. No, no, like Van Aert, like yeah. Bonin and Cancellara, where yes. you'd never see them there. Yeah. But then you'd never see uh, you'd never see Veronk and Pantani and Armstrong yeah. racing Flanders and Roubaix and so on with these guys and winning yet, it. Yet here yeah. we have this case, and that's why uh, that's why it's just it's just so remarkable and astounding that he's mm. there. Um, yeah, and I, what would you like to see if, if Tadej Bucket? Um, Tadej Pogacar was sharing his stats. What do you think we could learn if we saw them? Not a great... You already know what they are. Similar, we <laughs> know fact, them because we can calculate them. And in fact, even... And you also just know, like it's been documented over so many years. There's in fact a paper came out recently describing the power output of elite cyclists and it put into percentiles the top 1%, the top 5%, the top 10, 25 and 50. What do they produce for 20 minutes, 30 minutes... Uh, down to one minute, 10 seconds. What's the peak power output in the sprint that they can produce? So we kind of know what a professional cyclist looked like. And if you are the guy at the front of the race, then we know you're in the top 1%. <laughs> so even without Finapool providing us the numbers that we can now say it was 679 watts or 745 for 26 seconds, we, you have a good idea of that already. You know what it takes to win a ride at the front of the race. It's been known for many years. So I don't, that's again why I don't think that providing these numbers does much more than confirm what everyone thinks. Well, it also but it confirms What's, the authenticity of the performance, potentially, if we know that his range is within the realms, realms of possibility. So in other words, if we look at Pogacar and we look at from Matteo van der Poel, they were neck, neck on neck the whole mm. of the Tour of Flanders. We know what van der Poel is doing. Are his numbers un, like suspiciously high? versus Pogacar's well, numbers because they're the same essentially they must weigh similar I would imagine Pogacar and Fanapool I think mm. Fanapool's quite a probably bit heavier than, than Pogacar yeah. yeah I think he's probably so five, he really is a five to master. seven kilograms <laughs> heavier and that's why so unless he's winning the race unless he's opening 20 seconds on everyone in a, in a two kilometer climb repeatedly 
you know that it's going to be within the realms of possibility. <laughs> yes. And that's why, like, I used to, every Tour de France, I was sitting there, like, estimating. Because remember that stage, this was now five, ten years ago, we didn't have as free access to half a dozen riders who gave power. Now you do, and you've got guys on Twitter who are saying, let's estimate the power and then compare it to the provided power and see how accurate we are. And there's some issues, like if you have a tailwind, your estimate is a lot higher than the reality turns out to be. If it's a headwind, you're estimating six watts a kilo, you see the data, it's 6.3. Mm. Okay, so now you're off by 5%. Mm. But generally, over if a it's large a headwind going up a climb, you have to push harder into a headwind. Yeah, to produce a given performance. Calculations work on the basis that there's no wind at all. Exactly. Right. So unless you can make that adjustment, you're. But but if you did it over a large enough sample, there's as many days eventually with headwinds as tailwinds. Mm. You get you get a reasonable representation. So over a large enough data set, those estimates actually have stood the test of time. I think they're reasonable, provided mm. you acknowledge their limitations. But the reason I lost interest in doing it is because. All those performances, whether it was Armstrong, whether it was Ulrich and Pintani, who we know, okay, Pintani is the one guy who produced performances that were so far off the curve that you go, actually, this is what <laughs> one French analyst called mutant or alien, right? Yes. But the rest of them were not. Um, there are known dopers who've produced performances of 6.4 watts a kilo for 25 minutes. Right, well, that's not obviously doped. It's in that area of like, mm -hmm. if you say green, Definite, red, Pantani level of weirdness. <laughs> mm. All of them are in the orange. Mm. So it doesn't really tell you anything, you know? Mm. Mm. I think the initial hope was that we could analyze the performance and flag something as truly astonishing and go, that's not possible. Mm. But it doesn't work like that because it's not necessarily they're producing ridiculous performances, it's that they're producing high level top 1% performances all the time. Mm. And I think in this context, the, the smaller Tour de France guy riding Laporte and, uh, okay, Sorensen wasn't in the race, Mads Peterson, uh, Asgreen, okay, he had a mechanical, but he was <laughs> he was gone, mm. even without. Yeah, I he think. was already off the back. I think he, he, wasn't, he wasn't staying yeah. on that level, yeah. you know? That's, yeah. so the, then... He was one that lost one at last year, by the way. For those of you, that's right. Want yeah. some context? He actually outsprinted Funderpool. Yes, who <laughs> learned his lesson and didn't didn't allow a, a big motor to. He he turned it into a power sprint against Pogacar, mm -hmm. and in the end, he got lucky that the other two guys boxed Pogacar out. Yeah. He would have won the sprint anyway, in my opinion. Yeah, he's, I agree. He's, the, the 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 acceleration he showed to open that gap, he wasn't going to get caught. But yeah. anyway, it's. So anyway, I'm waffling a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is that the performance doesn't doesn't tell you really that much, mm. the, the numbers. And the only way we would know anything like that is if we actually knew if there was an absolute value that was realistic versus not realistic, and which it, is impossible to... At some point, it does become that. Yeah. Because, again, the performance is a function of how large is my engine, mm. how hot can my engine run for a long time, mm. and how efficient am I? So if you, if you take those three points of a triangle, A, B, and C, somewhere between those three points lies your performance. And at some point, let's say, for argument's sake, seven and a half watts a kilogram for 30 minutes, impossible. Right, so we know that that's, the, uh, that's beyond the upper well, limit. That's way beyond the upper limit. Right. Because to produce that for 30 minutes, you either have to have a VO2 max that's never been measured in a human. Or, or an e-bike. <laughs> or you have to have, correct, <laughs> or you have to have an e efficiency that's never been measured in a human. Yeah. Or you have to have the ability to run your engine at max for that long. And that doesn't happen because of fatigue. Mm. So, or a combination of the three. 
So if you saw that, you'd go, that guy's on an e-bike. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? It's the same thing as I used the analogy. If I'm setting my camera up on the highway and I measure a car at 340 kilometers an hour, that's not your run-of-the-mill Toyota. Mm. <laughs> yes. It has to have an engine and an, that's got to be a McLaren. Yeah. Or, yeah. or similar. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so there's no, unfortunately, there was no shining light billboard that said, here's a doper. No. But... um. So the problem is the, the 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 body of work, you know. That's yeah, and yeah. So it became. I guess the more we know, the more that people like my friend Mateo the pool share their information. The more we know about the upper echelons of the sport, because he mm. is at the top of the sport at the moment yeah. in terms of where he's classics. Yeah, and, and again, you still don't know how it's made. No. Um, so really, what you'd need is you'd need you'd need lo- a lot of physiological data measured over time mm. related to performances. So, okay, mm. what's your W prime? We spoke about this in that podcast. The, I don't think we called it What the FTP, yeah? Mm. Um, well, the W prime is your anaerobic capacity. So he would have a, so Funapur would have a critical power, let's say of uh, 420 watts. Every second he spends above 420 is eating into that battery. You know, that's how you think of it. Like that W prime is your battery. Right. So after one minute at 550 watts, He's used 130 watts for a minute more than he has battery power, Does that, or FT, uh, critical power. So he's, yes. he's eating into that battery. Yes, and, and it's limited. It's limited. Right. And in theory, the point at which that battery is deplete is the point at which you crack and you're gone. From you, You're no longer... So we know that he didn't. Mm. But again, you can make this power duration curve for him based on what you see in his training, and you could know when he's going to crack. It doesn't help you if you can't produce more than he can. Yeah. So, and Do you again, think it just becomes it, a numbers game now. A little bit, a little bit, but I mean, there's there, still are, a, there are obviously lots of tactics involved in this. You have to have a good. Although Funapool doesn't really have a team, he essentially has a B grade team. Well, it's a tier two team, but yeah. they, they, there's a world ranking now, and these Alpers and Felix are ranked easily in the top half mm-hmm. thanks to him. And and they get they've got other Only guys. Tim Murley has their Philipsons. There, they're actually a, they're actually they deserve to be more than a level two team. Yeah. They are very but, good, but they're no, they're no UAE, and they're certainly not a, a quick step team, for instance. No, in terms y- of Yumbo and so on, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. But Yumbo, yeah. yeah, it's um, it's possible for any one of you to, if you've got access to power data, you can make your own power duration curve, and you can work out where's your FTP, what's your W prime, your your battery, your mm-hmm. anaerobic capacity, and you can play with this. And it actually is fun to do. And I know you, you know this because you just bought yourself some. Power pedals, mm, haven't you, to look at your power? Yeah, and I'm overtrained. What you, like, what you I was going to say, what have you learned? There's a small, small digression about I've being able that, to see your power all the time. I've learned that we don't distribute our power well when we ride. We, we're too hard on the climbs and too easy on the descents. Uh-huh. So you could average 200 watts in two ways. You could average 220 going up and 180 going down. Or you can average three hundred going up and one hundred down, and that's what we do. That's and right. it makes for much <laughs> makes for a much harder ride than if you just mm. control the effort all the time. You know? A little bit harder when it's easy, and a little bit easier when it's hard. Mm. Narrow the gap. And then, and then the other or, cool or, thing or is should, to, or should you? Because if you think about the people like Matteo van der Poel, not that we're racing at that level, but that's what cycling is. It's about going easy, but able to go hard where it well, matters. We, we should because what we end up doing is we spend so much time in that middle zone, mm. middle to high zones. You know, there have been some really interesting papers come out, and this is a, another topic altogether. 
looking at elite runners and how much time they spend in like zone three, four, and five, and ninety percent of their training is one and two. Wow. Most of it's in one. So 180k wow. a week, I think, was the average for marathon runners. 155 of it, I think, it was in zone one. Wow. So they only they only spend 35k a week working above zone one, and of that, only five or six is in the high zones. Sure. But because we push hard on the climbs, we're we're going from zone f- one to four, one to four, one to four. And I know for myself, I'm spending too much time in that three, four, and five. The jump sure. mile zone. Yeah, and it's just the overtraining zone. Mm. So, yeah. so that's the one. And then the other thing is I use Golden Cheetah to analyze the power, and it's got this function where it works out your W prime. Golden Cheetah is? It's an it's a software software that you can then import your GPX files from Garmin, and then you can get torque in, and you can measure the the one cool metric is it shows you your W prime, and there you sit with your your starting value kilojoules, and every time I'm above my critical power, so obviously you have to have your inputs. You have to mm. tell it what your critical power is, what a W prime is. And then every time I'm above that, I'm eating into W prime. And it's fun to see, okay, here's a two minute effort that depleted 45% of my W prime. And wow. then 10 minutes later, I did a get on that. five minute effort and I depleted 39% of my W prime because I wasn't that much above FTP, you know? So you can play with it in different ways. What's it like again? That. Flying Cheetah. Golden Cheetah. Golden Cheetah. <laughs> Same thing that TKO, TKO does, you know, the Training Peaks right. one. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, they just allow you to visualize and mm. see your mm. data. So it's it's been fun. I mean, I'm overtrained because every time I ride, I'm like, okay, let's, because the other thing it does is <laughs> it builds a, builds a power duration. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, yeah. It builds a power duration curve for you. So now I know my best, 60 minute, 20 minute, 10 minute, five minute, one minute effort. And every time I ride, I'm like, let's see if I can get my five minute effort a bit higher than it was last time. Okay, this is today I'm gonna do a 30 second effort. And so there's never an easy day because anyway, it's just, it's just I'm playing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the advice to all of you that are out there riding your bikes, I think the message is clear whether you're riding your bikes or running actually, most of the real, the, the, the top class riders and, and cyclists and runners and cyclists are operating most of the time at an easy pace. And now you can analyze Funapool's yeah. data yourself and look yeah. at that and you can see, yeah. you know, this guy in Flanders was at, uh, what was his total? He was six hours, 35 minutes. Mm-hmm. Weighted average power was 338. Normalized power was 354. That's just to, to make some adjustments if it was constantly distributed or evenly distributed. And you can look at his heart rate and you can see that his average heart rate on this particular session, I'm not seeing it right here. I'd have to go into the analysis tab. Hang on. Uh, was 141 beats per minute, max 189. Yeah. Look at what he's done since, and you'll see a whole bunch of easy rides where he averages 120, 115. I was going to say, I'm looking at his heart rate now. Yeah. 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 Um, so and, and his average power is sorry his average power in this ride was two eighty five and and then then the weighted it goes up. Uh, he'll ride his training rides at two hundred and twenty watts. Yes. So you can see, yes. and, and he's not going above five hundred watts in those training rides. So yeah, yes. you can imitate. Yeah. There has been just incidentally quite good debate on whether this polarized model, you know, where you very easy for most of it and hard for some, not in the middle or whether you should distribute it more evenly. That's been the subject of some debate. There's actually a fairly good article discussing its merits and 
pros and cons, mm. which maybe we can discuss at another time. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating subject. Yeah. Let's just move on very briefly. And uh, it is just a, a, um, a Instagram that went up uh, mm. around Matthew van der Poel's um, nutrition strategy. So there's a picture of his, uh, if you want to have a look at it, it's on cycling tips on Instagram. And they've got a picture of um, Matthew van der Poel's nutrition plan. And it's got everything from 20 kilometers right through to the 272 of the, of the event itself. Um, what's interesting is that at 200 kilometers, in other words, with 70 k's to go, he he it represents a caffeine gel that he mm, put in. A so smiley face. Yeah, but we've talked a little bit in past podcasts around how regularly you need to fuel yourself on rides like this, mm. and it's he's literally drinking a bottle every 20 kilometers, um, based on what you can see on the, on his top stem. And there's energy bars and all sorts of, but he is fueling quite a lot. And then he, by the first time he hits the qua, um, the quavement, it's he's also you know he's in he's had a lot to eat and drink by that point. Yeah. But it, it does it does support what we have talked about before that if you're going to go do long rides, you need to keep fueling yourself. And um, it's, yeah. And at that level, they'll all have a plan like that. Mm. I don't know that they all stick it on their stem in the way that he did, mm. um, but they all have that in mind because you know. You know, when you're going for six and a half hours and you know the intensity of that effort, and there are so many in, in Flandern, for instance, you know that there are going to be every 15 kilometers, there's going to be a hard effort. That's a carbohydrate expensive effort because the intensity is yeah. high, right? When we exercise at low intensity, we can get most of our energy from fats. And mm-hmm. these guys are so well trained that even harder efforts, they're going to burn fats more than you and I would. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is a carb intensive effort and so the number one priority nutrition wise is how am I going to make sure that I replace the carbohydrates and keep the blood sugar and the muscle glycogen and the liver glycogen levels high enough because if you mess that up you're gone your blood glucose levels drop you get hyperglycemic you get light you know the symptoms right lightheaded dizzy weak tunnel visioned game over yeah that's the the famous bonking yeah so for sure they all plan this you know and what we saw there was rice cakes early because the, overall the, t- the tempo is quite low early on, you know. I mean, they're, they're working, but it's controlled and mm. it's, um, what's the word, almost predictable. But he's race. putting a lot of fuel in early on when he actually is yeah, planning for later. You, you don't wait to deplete to replace. Um, and overall, they're, they're aiming for 100 grams an hour. We spoke in our endurance series about fueling for endurance. And, you know, it used to be thought that 60 grams per hour was the limit for how much your body could get in and then use because the, the limiting step is is getting it from your intestine into mm-hmm. your bloodstream mm-hmm. and that that's you know they were saying i mentioned in that podcast is inside the stomach and intestine still outside the body it doesn't count until it's in <laughs> yeah and 60 grams per hour was the maximum capacity to get that done because um it the movement of glucose which is your carb from the intestine into the blood is not passive it's it's controlled by a transport molecule called SGLT, S, sorry, SLGT, sodium limited glucose transporter. That's what gets glucose into the blood. Right. You can almost think of it like an elevator that's got to get you from the first floor to the second floor. Right. Intestine, and a certain amount of elevators. Intestine, first floor, in the blood, second floor. But the elevator is, as you say, there's a certain number of them and they can only move at a certain speed. Right. So 60 grams per hour was thought to be that limiting step. In other words, this elevator could only get 60 people per hour <laughs> mm. from the first to the 
um, to the second floor. Right. What they then discovered is that if you supplement the glucose with fructose, once you've maxed out the glucose transporter, you can actually get that fructose in through another source, the staircase, <laughs> you know, as it were, in my analogy. It's a good analogy. So, so now, now you could get your total carb oxidation from 100, uh, from 60 all the way to over 100. And the, the, the initial study showed huge, huge increases in carbohydrate oxidation potential. So in other words, if you're using glucose-fructose combination, you're essentially able to get more yeah. energy into your body. Exactly. So that, that combination now has opened up higher rates of carb oxidation than before. And so we don't know what material from a pool was taking other than rice cakes, bottles, and gels, I assume. Yeah. There, was three, there were three symbols, eh? Three symbols, yeah. But well, four symbols if you include the caffeine gel, which is only one. Yeah. But for sure, he has to be taking a mix of carbohydrates there. It's not just glucose because yeah. you cannot get... 100 grams into the blood to oxidize. It causes stomach problems if you try. In fact, even even with a glucose-fructose mix, tolerating that amount of carbohydrate is quite difficult. You have to train it. So we can probably reasonably estimate that from a pool practices carb replacement in order to be able to do what he then did on that sticker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite um, fascinating. Yeah. Let's just talk about about the caffeine jar because mm. if I was today a pagacha, I would have looked down on on my opponent's stem and thing. He's going to hit a. He's going to have one of these caffeine gels at 200 kilometers. I want to attack him at 295, sorry, 195. Yeah. <laughs> but that would have been a good tactic if I was um, today. But what does a caffeine gel do compared to what the, all the other stuff he's been having do? Well, in this instance, it's a central nervous system stimulant. So he's looking for a boost, literally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a finished bottle. We can talk about those in a moment because there was an interview with Taylor Finney came out in the week where he said the use of these finishing bottles was something that he was upset about and got into trouble for criticizing. But but the, presumably this is just a caffeine gel. I'd love to know how much. You know, caffeine used to be banned um, until the 90s, mm-hmm. and then they took it off the banned list, presumably because there wasn't enough evidence that it was A, performance enhancing, and B, harmful. Mm. And I know for a fact, like within probably within hours of it being taken off the list, all the elite athletes were using it. Rugby teams were dosing caffeine before the game and at halftime because mm. it's known to have central nervous system. You all know this, right? You're listening yes. to this. Uh, you know, you're not functioning in the morning till you have your coffee because yep. it gives you alertness. It wakes you up. It gives you a little bit of... And that's, that's what he's trying to do there, literally. And why wouldn't he have multiple ones of that? Um, there is a, you know, like, as I said athletes were using this stuff the moment it became available and it can cause gastro problems right it can cause anxiety and central like again it's the same you know some people can't drink coffee for that Mm. very reason and so and 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 you become used to it Mm. um you know people who drink coffee regularly will have an espresso before bed if i have a teaspoon of espresso before bed I'm not sleeping because I'm not a regular coffee drinker so in the same way you wouldn't want to use it all the time in a race because you dampen the effect of that thing so you you use it when needed judiciously because then the effect it gives you is going to be larger Mm. so that's what's happening there you know the 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 fin just to come back to the finishing bottle thing the 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 way Finney tells it and this has been told by a number of cyclists I think you can say that it is legit is they would use painkillers, tramadol, which is a Schedule 5, pretty potent painkiller, plus caffeine, and then they would taking Sudafed, which is also a caffeine-containing thing, an allergen, allergenic oh. drug. And that's what they were giving the cyclists in the last sort of 30, 40k of a race. 
And he spoke out about that and got told off for it. It was one of the reasons he left the sport. So you're suggesting that's quite a common... Yeah, he said it was yeah. very common back when he was riding. He retired in 2019, so you can use your judgment as to whether that stopped or not. They're not testing for that stuff, though, no. so why would it stop? But yeah. anyway, the, the caffeine, I think, is probably very common. Sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll try that in my next ride with you. <laughs> when I did the, when I did that stupid summer solstice thing, yeah. I was on Red Bulls for the last three or four hours of that. Really? Yeah, Just I was. To keep you up. Yeah, we, I was. A couple of last, stuck my, in your back pocket. As my well. last, <laughs> and I wish I had him. That stuff is rocket fuel. You do feel invincible on it. Yeah. Um, the 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 last, yeah, I was. I took two cans of Red Bull, stuck in my in my jersey pockets, and off I went. Yeah. Yeah, mm. not advisable, I don't think. No, unless yeah, you're doing something extreme. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to see what the pros might do. I, I guess they will always use whatever they can to get the maximum benefit within the legalities of the sport. Yeah, and sometimes beyond. Eh? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> the, I'd be interested to know what the dosage was of that caffeine. You know, because I, I, I think you probably need, especially in the midst of exercise, you probably need quite a large dose. Because mm. remember, at that point, the adrenaline is flowing. You're in this cauldron of noise and, and, and like, you, you probably need quite a large dose. It'd be interesting to know how much you took. I think you'd find it's a lot more than you'd get in a can of Red Bull. Yeah. It's probably Red yeah. Bull on Red Bull. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Okay, we'll take a little, uh, a short break and then we'll be back with our second half. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right, so let's uh, get stuck into um, some research around and continuing on the theme of our cycling podcast today. Um, very recently, there was a, a paper which Ross will get into into some bit more detail at the moment, but around cadence. And of course, cadence is the amount of revolutions that you have when you're riding your bike. There's been a lot of talk about it. And back in the 80s and early 90s, people like Miguel Enderain were climbing the big mountains of the Tour de France at a relatively low cadence, just relying on their power. Lance Armstrong came along and was spinning like a washing machine and suddenly everybody thought the best way to ride your bike is to ride along at a high cadence if you look at professional cadences most of the professional riders are in the upper 80s to early 90s Mm. over 100 at times for the average rider out there i'm happy to get a cadence of 80 if i'm having a good ride um let's talk a little bit about what i'm adding to what i've just said the, this theory about the fact that you the higher your cadence the more efficient you are as a rider yeah Why so just that? that that study was actually published in 2019 or 20 so mm. it's actually now a couple okay, of years old it's just but come it to only, the forefront now yeah it only got picked up recently you know and it mm. was a study i think done out of spain they took Admittedly, and we'll get onto this in a moment, a relatively low number of cyclists with a wide range of abilities, which when you're evaluating a paper is a, is a warning sign because if you take eight or nine people and the variation between them, between best and worst is 200 watts worth of ability, then you've only got one or two at each level. You know? You've know, mm. got a couple of beginners, a couple of 
that's not really a deep enough sample to make solid, reliable conclusions. So my interpretation of that paper was a little more uh, circumspect than in some other media people. I will put that out there. But <laughs> the, the you see, the cadence thing was if you, and I wrote this in your article, by the way, those of you who want, you can read the Bicycling Mag Bio. Yes, you can check it on Magster if you want to buy the Slav conversion of bicycling. It's in there in this month. Yeah, and so I'll tell the story there. If you, you go back and you watch the mid, early 90s, Watch the finish of, of like Liège, Baston, Liège. Watch the finish at some stages in the Vuelta. You don't see guys at 95 to 100 RPM. They are 70s to 75, maybe, sometimes even lower. And it's a slow grind. You know, Frank Vandenbroek, there's one clip of him winning Liège, Baston, Liège with an attack at 65 RPM. It's like slow motion. Maybe at a sprint he gets to 80. Yeah, it is. It's just it's just like <laughs> big grind, you know. And they didn't have the gears back then than they have now. That was part of it, yeah. So mm. there's certainly technologies enabled it. But then what promoted it was, for instance, the, the Lance Armstrong mythology was, you know, the, the two things that made Lance, <laughs> according to the media and certain scientists, that made him uh, a champion when he came back from cancer was he'd lost the weight and he'd developed this high cadence style of riding. And so they, that was what we were told. Now we know, obviously, it, there was a little bit more to it than that. <laughs> but um, that that gained popularity, you know. Like, you couldn't watch the Tour de France and Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin would tell you about the diesel style of Jan Ulrich and the high-spinning style of Lance Armstrong. It, it was like this pantomime thing, you know. You had your, your villain and your hero, and the hero was doing A, and the villain, <laughs> the loser, was doing B. So everyone said, well, I must ride now at 95. Mm, I must be the... No, we the- don't have... We don't have, the reason we ride slow is we don't have the gears. You know, the moment it goes uphill, we run out of gears ourselves. Because <laughs> to ride at 95 up 10 percent, you need either to have a very, very mm. good gear ratio or very, very high power output. <laughs> they don't have enough technology for me. What no. yet. <laughs> and then, and then I remember in the 2000s, like we then had Froome in well, yeah, the 2010s. Still mentioned him, yeah. And I mean, if Lance Armstrong was a washing machine, Chris Froome was like a electric egg beater. Yeah, it was nuts. Like what he did in Mont Ventoux is still the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in cycling. He attacked at 130 130 RPM. And and then Sky was telling us that that was what their data showed was most efficient. They don't do it anymore. So I don't know whether their data disproved them or whether that was also the same mythology stuff. But anyway, the the point is that it became entrenched that you have to ride at 90, spin it out. The idea was that you saved your legs because... Mm. Any one of you can do this. I mean, you, and you know it already. If it goes uphill and you don't drop down gears, the burden instantly shifts to muscular fatigue as opposed right. to cardiovascular. Mm. Straight away, you know it. Because now you've got to produce the same power output on 40 revolutions fewer per minute. Yeah. You go from 90 to 50. Now, that means that every single pedal push is twice as forceful. Now, we don't talk about force. In cycling, we talk about torque because torque is the rotational equivalent of force, right? Mm. Um, so we're applying a force to turn a rotate something around a, an axis. That's a pedal. <laughs> so torque loads the muscle. Mm. Uh, high cadence unloads the muscle, but it requires a higher cardiovascular and metabolic load. So there's that trade-off, right? Makes sense that there's yeah. a. And so at some point, you've got to figure out what's optimum for you. And what this paper found in these, I think it was nine people, um, is that when they rode at 90 RPM, the deoxygenation of the quadriceps was higher. And so they were able to measure, you can measure it using some fancy equipment, uh, how much oxygen is in the quads. And their finding was that at the 90 RPM, there was less. 
And so the conclusion was that your higher cadence in this level of cyclist is probably metabolically more costly and should be avoided. So ride at lower cadences. I suspect that's probably true because as much as you, partly probably true, because as much as you think of cycling as anyone can do it, just get on the bike and pedal, there is a skill component to turning the pedals over. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and you don't, if you ever watch an elite cyclist, in fact, and you didn't know he's elite, you can tell he's elite by the way he pedals. There's a fluidity. Yeah. yeah, and I remember we tested Jan Ulrich in the early, mid-2000s, and within seconds of him on a stationary bike, like, this guy's doing a different thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm pedaling, he's flowing. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they're just, they're, so there is a definitely a skill. And, I mean, if you think about it, if you ride for five hours a day for 10 years, <laughs> how many pedal revolutions have you accumulated? You're yeah. learning. There's a, there's a motor coordination thing that's being acquired over time and mm. amateurs don't have that and so go out and ride at 120 rpm and feel how ragged you are yeah. you're all over the place you're just out of control yeah it's not efficient yeah at yeah. 90 you don't feel out of control but maybe mm. you're two percent less efficient than you could have been at 85 yeah and five percent less than at 80 so you have to maybe find where you are efficient now i don't this is not an ad for going back to the 70 RPM style because now you're going to accept muscle fatigue induced by torque overload. Mm. So there's a trade-off and I think every person mm. can figure out where that trade-off is. It probably depends on the balance between your cardiovascular fitness and your muscular fitness. Mm. Some people with stronger muscles can produce torque without fatigue. Mm. Some people with weaker muscles might need to Go up and you know what I mean, okay? Yeah. So you've got to play with that. I mean, is it is it fair to say then that when you are cycling at a high cadence, you are obviously relying more on your cardiovascular system, in other words, your lungs and heart to at a higher are your lungs not heart operating at a relatively higher heart rate, as opposed to going at a lower um, heart rate where you are potentially pushing a bigger gear. So in other words, yeah, doing your, a mini torque. And your control. heart rate is a proxy. <clears throat> it's a it's a it's the dashboard. Um, for for how hard the engine is working right so if your heart rate's up then you can assume the oxygen demand the metabolic demand is up as well and that's been fairly consistently found is that the higher the cadence the higher the heart rate and if you bring it down then you can you've got i I hate to use cardiovascular sparing because it's not like you're depleting your yeah but but the low the demand on the metabolic system is lower and the car the heart rate's just an indicator of that so simplistically yes that is the truth the the the, the question is, realistically, if, if I'm riding at a comfortable power output now, 200 watts, well within my capacity, and I'm at <coughs> 90 RPM versus 70, maybe my heart rate's three or four beats higher, but it's still not anything like the ceiling. Mm-hmm. So does it really matter for me to save four or five beats a minute when I'm nowhere near capacity? Not really. No. When you start talking about now I'm at my limit, my critical power or FTP, now maybe that starts to become important. But to produce the 300 watts that's required there, your torque demand is a little bit higher. You can't meet it at 75 RPM because now you've got to produce. You can work out the relationship, by the way, between torque and power. There's a formula. Mm. You take the power divided by... (coughs) Frog in the throat today. Yeah. You can take take the power divided by... 2 pi times the cadence over 60. Anyway, that's the formula. Okay. And you work out the torque. And, you know, to if you do torque intervals, which is a great way to develop that torque producing, that's a neuromuscular session. Yes. You're grinding it out at 35 to 45 RPM, maybe 60 initially, because it's, it's hard work. 
your cardiovascular demand is enormous, but at 70 RPM, it's not that high. So yeah. you're, you're playing all the time with combinations. And as I say, there's a trade-off. Yeah. And I would well, maybe there, maybe there's a good tactic it. to actually play with those combinations. You have to. You, yeah, yeah, you learn it. You, 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 you figure out it's a U-shaped thing, right? Too mm. low is bad. It's Goldilocks principle again. Too hot is bad. Too cold is bad. Just right in the mm. middle. Right. And that just in the middle will vary, not widely between people, but but I'm not going to sit here and say 87 to 90. That's that's probably mine. Yours might be 80 to 84. I was so going to say, yeah. So, so cadence is as variable as the riders themselves. Yeah, Because it depends exactly. on your... I mean, we're not sitting here proponing to be cycling coaches, but logically speaking yeah the way so, that you the as comfortable as you feel is probably right. the cadence that you should be looking at so I mean, I if mine's 85 and yours is 90 then whatever area i feel the most efficient is probably the best correct one. and when you're riding on a flat road without much headwind and so on then you can you can sit at 95 to 100 because you're riding at 50 percent of your max power mm. you're comfortable you've got a lot of reserve then you spin it out yeah do some rides where you ride at 100 to 110 for a few minutes at a time because mm. that's how you learn the coordination. Yeah. And do some rides where you ride at 60 with a high torque because that's how you learn that element of coordination, the, the requirement to produce torque. And if you if you train on either extreme and you find the point in the middle, that's where you ride for performance. Mm. So mm. for sure, you, 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 you go high and you go low and then when you need it to be optimal, you go in the middle. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So it's good to get those sort of things in perspective because I think a lot of the time you see these reports and you see these things that we're talking about. Um, last point, we're talking about Sonny Crabelli, who yeah. had a, I mean, it's a, a very short part of the podcast today, but a, a, a well, I think top class pro having some heart problems. Yeah, and not, not, not unusual for cycling. I mean, we've seen it last year, Christian Eriksen collapses in the match between Denmark and Finland, I think it was. He, he's playing again now, Ericsson. Mm. Um, that happened towards the end of Feb, I think. He's, he's back now for Brentford, beat Chelsea. Uh, you'll hear this two weeks after that happened. But um, I, th- I think as we get back to normal sport now post-COVID, and thankfully many of the restrictions are being lifted, we do run the risk of inviting this kind of thing happening. Now, there are people listening to this who say it's all vaccine-related, it seems to me like if you if you put your ear to the ground and you hear hooves, you don't look for zebras, you look for horses. The more obvious thing to look for here is COVID and other illnesses. So Perry Nice had 59 finishes, uh, the lowest in many years. Even with COVID last year, there were more people finished Perry Nice than now with with precautionary removals from riders. You know, there were teams that abandoned when there was a positive test among the teams. Still fewer this year. Wow. And there have been reports. I mean, Gannis, Gannis reported to say that about 80% of the peloton in Tirana was sick at one point. Um, the, the problem we now have, and Joe Lindsay, who's a really good journalist in the States, did a really good tweet thread on this. Yeah, it's bicycling, yeah. That's right. And it's been reported as bronchitis and stomach issues and flu, but they don't test. Some teams are testing, but it's not policy anymore to test and confirm whether or not it's COVID. But the UCI has changed its COVID policies. It used to be negative test to enter any race. It's now only required a negative test for seven day or more races. So the big tours, like the current Basque country tour wouldn't need that. Um, Paris-Nice probably was one of the few that did. Um, and the problem, the problem we now have is that as the, re- as the restrictions are relaxed, there is the potential for more exposure to COVID 
because I mean, in the UK, they're still in the hundreds of thousands of cases a day. Mm. I look because Vote for Art obviously missed Flanders because of COVID. Mm. In Belgium, they're still up in the fifty thousand cases a day. Mm. So you put a cyclist back into the community where this thing is circulating, you're going to get cases. Luckily, because of the vaccine, not super serious cases like they were two years ago, but cases. Mm. Now, the, the problem, and then this is a long-winded way of getting to the point, is that in a time before COVID, back in the good old days, um, myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, or pericarditis, inflammation of the pericardium around the heart, was responsible for about one in 11 cardiac issues during sport. So we know that cardiac arrests happen, like Ericsson, like Cabrelli. In the, U- in the UK, I think 30 people, are, uh, are, I think it's, per, I must, I mean, in fact, let me not give you the stat, but it's a lot more common than you'd think. Mm. And one of the risk factors for it is flu, training with a flu. Now, that's COVID, right? Yeah. So Cabrelli, obviously, like, dramatic, collapses at the end of the first stage of the Volta Catalunya. His cycling career is now questionable. Mm. Um, and everyone's like, what, how can this happen, you know? Well, we don't know because you get other things, cardiomyopathies, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and so on. We, we discussed this incidentally on that podcast a year, mm. a year ago. But the, the, the question is whether this is going to happen in, in um, professional cycling more and more. And um, anyway, anyway, like I'm, I'm waffling a little bit because I, mm. think it's, I think it's really interesting to look at. So Cabrelli now is going to get what's called an ICD which is an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. Okay. Amazing tech. Wow. Same thing that Christian Eriksen's got. Same thing that Danny Blint has. He's a, a Dutch soccer player. Uh, now, now playing at Ajax, used to be Man United. What, what that is, is you, you know what an external defibrillator is, right? Yes. That's the shock pads. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, save lives, big time. Mm. This is literally one that's built in, Im- embedded in the body. Wow. And usually they sit under the clavicle and they detect when there's an abnormal heart rhythm, an arrhythmia, and then they develop, well, once they detect it, they deliver a shock to the heart. It's actually amazing to think that they can do this. And it then instantaneously shocks the heart back into rhythm. You'll find video footage of a footballer from Belgium called Anthony Van Loo, who during a match has one of these things, and you actually see it happen to him. He collapses, and the thing shocks him back into life, and about 45 seconds later, he sits up. I mean, it's, it's, it's a serious issue. Yeah. But you can play elite sport with this device. Wow. So what's really interesting for Cabrelli now is whether he can get back to that level with this device. A study that was done out of Yale, 440-odd people with this device were tracked for four years, and one in 10 of them had an event. None died, because they work, but one in 10. So 10% of the time, people with these ICDs will have it triggered during sport or training. Now. Cabrelli comes back, let's say next year, races Paris-Roubaix. Now you're talking about human right at the limit. That's that's an interesting scenario. Yeah. He he wouldn't be allowed to race in Italy. It's illegal to do elite sport if you have an ICD. He can play. That's why Christian Eriksen incidentally left Italy. He played for a club in Milan. He's now in England because he's not allowed to play in Italy, but he is in England. Fascinating. So it's, it's quite interesting to like look at how this all plays out because and, and certainly a podcast we must do is talk about the cardiovascular implications of COVID and vaccines because the vaccine does have a risk of pericarditis and myocarditis. There's no mm. doubt it does. It's just considerably smaller than actually having the disease. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So uh, anyway, maybe it really wasn't COVID. Maybe it was just normal flu. Maybe mm. it was just a normal risk that existed in mm. the guy. But it certainly ends a discussion around it the wider issue. It certainly a discussion. Yeah. And should, should <clears throat> athletes yeah. be screened? If you had COVID, do you need special screening? And mm. the answer is probably yes, mm. um, but with certain indications. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting. And I think it will be decisive. I mean, it was decisive to Flanders for vote for not <laughs> COVID. It'll be decisive at the tour. The other thing, incidentally, last word on this is because because people have been in a bubble for so long, our natural immunity to all viruses has probably gone down. Mm. You know, we're not. It's like your your daughter now goes to school; she's going to bring home a new disease every week <laughs> yes, it feels because like she's that. got no she's got no innate immunity to anything. We're wearing masks for the last two years, exactly. And yeah. so we've all we've all regressed our immune function. So the prediction you'd have made based on lockdown and bubbles and quarantine and so on is that we will now be more vulnerable than ever to these stomach bugs, to yeah. normal common colds, to bronchi... So how that plays out in the cycling season will be interesting to see. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Right, Professor Rostock, thank you very much for a very fascinating discussion. Don't forget you can follow us on Sports SciPod on uh, Instagram and Twitter and uh, let us know what you think about these issues around cycling. But uh, from us for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.